Hello, and welcome to Data Today, brought to you by Zulka. I'm your host, Dan Klein, and I look after everything data and AI at Zulka. We're living in a world of opportunities, but to fully realize them, we have to reshape the way we innovate. We need to stop siloing data, ring fencing knowledge, and looking at traditional value chains. And that's what this podcast is about. We're taking a look at data outside the box to see how amazing individuals from disparate fields and industries are transforming the way they work with data, the challenges they are overcoming, and what we can all learn from them. This week, we're taking a look at something a little out of the box, or rather something in several thousand boxes. The Getty Research Institute has started an ambitious digitization project alongside the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. In a $30 million scheme, the Getty is digitizing an archive of over 4 million photographs from the Jet and Ebony magazines. It's considered one of the premier archives of African American cultural history in the US. The Getty Research Institute is building a portal to showcase the collection to students and researchers, and it's going to be incredible as it develops over the coming years. Now, this has been a lot more than a massive digitization project. It's creating and protecting cultural and historical narratives. It's giving the data meaning. We're joined today by Dr. Laurent Brooks, research curator at the Getty Research Institute, to talk about human history and the insight as data. Well, you know, Dan, it, it takes a team, right? So as a curator who, who helps acquire these materials, it takes catalogers, it takes uh, collections managers, it takes registrars, it takes movers, it, it takes a whole team. And so, you know, something like the Johnson Publishing Company archive, uh, 5 million images, you know, where we're processing, but it takes the experts on the chain of processing to make it available to the public. And so, you know, something like that may take almost a decade right, the process. And so the things I bring in, there'll be a whole new generation of kids coming out of college who will benefit from it, you know? And so it's, it's really efforts toward a better future, if you want to look at it that way. It, it goes through many hands, but but these are experts who are working in a team to process it, to make it available uh, in person and online. And so it, it's really teamwork, Dan. It's really teamwork. Okay, so now we've got this team, now we've got it accessible by people. I sense from your background and from your journey that you are still trying to create narratives with these collections that you're bringing in. So how should it shape what we think about today? You know, Dan, I'm, I'm going to back this way up. So for instance, I uh, studied genealogy, meaning the study of one's family or one's, one's line. And there was a point where the, the only ancestor I could find, right, was on a census record. And this young child became a number, right? Because this child was property. You know, I come from enslaved people in America, Right. And so in order to find that child again, I would have to look through property records in the town in Alabama where my family is from. Right. And beyond that is an aspect of imagination because I can't track it back to Africa unless I find a shit manifest. You see? And so there's, there's an aspect of who we are or our legacies or that is an aspect of the imagination because we can't make the, the material ties that go back, right? And so when we think about what an, what an archive is, an archive is this leading us on this line of truth toward the imagination because in some particular way, you know, we are beyond the, the physical record. But I, I'm interested in your story here because you're, there's another narrative here 
which is around the dehumanization, the creating of numbers and property yeah. Yeah. in Alabama, in your, in your generations past. And that narrative and explaining that narrative and broadening that narrative, that's part of what you're trying to do here with the archives in terms of bringing some of these cultural historic issues to life. Are we trying to learn lessons from the past here? Is that where we're going here with what you're doing? Hey, this is a heck, this is a heck of, a, of an origin story here, Dan. <laughs> I like to ask the difficult questions, Lauren. <laughs> That's okay. Well, you know, you know, my work is in no small degree influenced uh, by the fact that my history or my, my want to know my, my deep history is really shrouded in, in sort of shadows, right? Because, you know, America is still a very young nation. And I'm the first generation of my family to be born outside of segregation, Right. And so there, there is a real need for um, me to do the kind of work by, or through which or by which we do not forget where we come from. We do not forget our past. And so by our past, I don't just mean my familial past. I mean the lessons from how my family was treated as a way to sort of not forget that we do not repeat things like enslavement, that we do not repeat things like segregationist laws, right? It's really important that legacy be protected because they teach us where we come from and they can inspire us in terms of thinking through them where we're going. You talk at length in a lot of your uh, commentary about the use of imagery. So I'm interested in how you think about the use of visual imagery as a way of really setting the scene for narrative in terms of the really big archive you've got of images. How do you pick up the sort of one, two, three, four, five top images to really make a point, if you like, and pull together a narrative and show off a collection for what it is, but also make quite a profound societal point, if you like? How, how does that work for you? Well, images matter. And here I'm thinking politically. So if you think of Jim Crow, Jim Crow segregation was, the, the character Jim Crow was a minstrel character, right? It was a, a white man dressing up in blackface to act in the sort of black cultural ways. And so we talk about how a law was basically named after that character, right? And so the, the dehumanization or the visual dehumanization of African-Americans was then used to sort of characterize a system of segregationist laws. And so images matter. And so uh, when we think about how visual art or art images from popular culture in that particular intersection, if we do not examine them, if we do not understand the ways in which they can be enacted politically for, to enact the best in us, but also to, to empower the worst in us, what does it mean for this democracy? And so images have a direct relationship. Well, the power of images has a direct relationship to the character of our democracy and the character of the laws that shape our lives. And so starting from there, what does it mean that African-American uh, images and popular culture have been used against us? And so just starting from there, for me, the kind of work that I want to do is to help shape this democracy toward a better path. So you've got kind of, I, I'm, let me call these images, they're data points in a time span, aren't they? In some senses, your collections are, you're trying to surface data points which wouldn't necessarily be referenced in popular culture and then surface them as counter-narratives to try and offset some of the popular culture data points that already exist. Have I, have I characterized that correctly? Yes, and, and, uh, and also, Dan, the, the archives in and of themselves, by the fact that they exist, are basically a challenge to the racist perceptions of African Americans. So there's the things that can be done with archives, but then there's the, the fact that these archives exist in and of themselves beyond any kind of 
um, interpretation that's a coup against history. Why do these archives matter to you? Because you're clearly very passionate about these archives. So what is it in particular that's getting you really excited about what you're seeing? An archive is a record of human memory. And I look at, in the broad sense, I look at my work as saving human memory, preserving the deep history of human memory, but through the lens of artists. You know, every time I move, Dan, they're like, there's like four boxes I don't use, but they have like conference badges, they have letters or, or whatever. But every time I move, they, there's more boxes. And I'm thinking, why do I have these boxes that have no practical use, but they have all of these records in them? Oh, it's a record of my existence through paper, through prints, through correspondence, through all the kinds of things that we do every day. We, we converse with people through these sort of written and material ways. That leave, that leave a record for a story and so understand what the context of one's life. And so it's a deeply human uh, endeavor to sit down with someone who uh, is ready to talk to me about how do we preserve this record of my existence as an academic, as an artist, as a creative being in the world, and what then would you do with, with stewarding this legacy? So it's deeply personal. But it leaves us with a record by which we can understand our existence on this planet, our existence as humans who've created a cultural existence that really elaborates on the value of our lives. So how do you bring this to life? I mean, this is, uh, I can imagine there's a cataloging phase in it, but then at some point when you've cataloged it all and you've, you've got it all there, you've got to communicate what you've got. You've got to be able to express it to the wider world. So how does that narrative and storytelling work for you? I mean, you've got the oral tradition in there, you've got the visual tradition, you've got the written tradition. I can imagine curating that and bringing that together. I mean, that's that's not straightforward, huh? It's I mean, not straightforward. We're so used to seeing data that we often forget the human stories behind it, the context, the people that generate these data points and the stories they tell. Frankly, getting insight beyond the data is something organisations have only relatively recently discovered the value in. Check out our interview with Heather Savory for more on that. This isn't just transferring photos from storage crates to silicon. It's about piecing together a story that has been hidden for decades, slowly unraveled issue by issue in Ebony and Jet magazines, and now being made available as a whole picture so that we can look back with the aid of snappy user interfaces and more importantly, the insights on our past that we have today and add context, narrative, and insights to the information. And with those insights, we can hopefully do better, or at least be better informed in the future. So how did Laurent get here, and what's his story? The long road to Getty, oh my God, okay. Well, you know, I grew up in New York. My parents migrated from Alabama in the late 1960s. My parents grew up in American segregation. And so you have images of Martin Luther King. You have images of the, the modern civil rights movement. And that movement was started to help this become, help American democracy live up to the promises of democracy, meaning all created equal. We are equal under the law and the laws, but the laws are actually actively working against my parents, Right. And so they migrated to New York in the late 1960s. And so I had to had the benefit of being raised in New York um, during a really interesting time. And as far as the arts go, it was a flowering of the arts, I would say, in the 1990s when I was growing up in New York. And so I worked at the Metropolitan Museum. I had access to arts programs. 
Uh, I worked at the Studio Museum in Harlem. There were openings at, at MoMA. And, and so there, there was a way in which, as a, a kid who grew up in New York, I didn't have to migrate to New York as an adult. I, I grew up in the arts as a child of that particular environment. When I teach about Leonardo da Vinci, I say that if Leonardo had been born uh, in you know, Siberia, he, he would have been Leonardo the great goat herder. <laughs> Very right? good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it takes yeah. an environment. It, it takes being at the center of a cultural sort of... A shift, a shift. Yes, that's right. And and so Leonardo had the benefit of working in workshops. Leonardo had the benefit of, of seeing public sculpture. He had the benefit of access to the center of the art world in, in that particular degree. And so uh, it was in college when I found a book in the library by Ramar Bearden and Harry Henderson called The History of African-American Artists from 1792 to the Present. I was an art student, but I had no idea about the deep history of African-American artists, people who looked like me. Sometimes you just, you need a precedent. It really was inspirational to go back into American history and just read about all the people who had the same urge that I had to make, to give their dreams physical form, if you want to call visual art that, right? But I also was a writer. And so instead of going to MFA program, I applied to a PhD program from undergraduate. Uh, then I was accepted to graduate school and I, had to, I got a chance to study with Robert Storr, who was the the chief curator at the Museum of Modern Art. And so I, I moved from being a practitioner to being another kind of practitioner, to being a, an art historian. Uh, if I chose the academic route, I was a professor for a decade. But there was a moment where I said I needed, I needed a shift. I wanted to be in the field. And so I moved to California three years ago from New York. And, you know, Dan, I had a great couple, you know, six months, but then, you know, it's pandemic time. It's then it's lockdown time. And, and during this moment, uh, I think for me, finding meaning and preserving people's legacy was really important because it, it was a moment of extreme anxiety. It was a moment in which people were, there was a lot of death. There was a lot of, you know, people were really struggling to just maintain sanity during that particular moment. And so at the same time to be working on the preservation or the legacy of African-American artists was, was something that, that gained more traction, more meaning for me. And so moving forward, you know, what I want to do is something in vain with, you know, this particular mission. And I think what I'm doing at Getty uh, is really important because it's really important because the institution like, like Getty is, is, is really unique in terms of I work for a foundation that can do things that um, many or other organizations cannot do. But ideally, at the heart of, of my mission is the preservation of my people's memory. The heart of, of, of my mission as a curator, as an educator, as an academic is, is to really help expose people to what is American history and how can we not repeat the sort of sins of the past? Because even in this particular moment, we're not that far away from segregation. People think that is like uh, the times of ancient Greece. Segregation is still the 1960s. And so it's still right here, but you know, I, I guess in our everyday lives, we, we think it's so far away because the film is in black and white, right? Because the, the people are dressed differently, because you don't see the, well, maybe we are seeing the outpouring of people in the streets calling a kind of segregation again. But there may be, it may be called gerrymanding uh, polling districts, right? And, and so it's the, the legacy of the things that led us into segregation still exists. The legacy of segregation as a legal um, legacy still exists. When you think about uh, the prison industrial complex, right? If you think about the ways in which the gerrymandering of the polls, voter suppression. Uh, for my grandfather, my own grandfather to vote, he would have had to take a poll test. How many bubbles in the bar of soap? 10,000? No, 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 it's 10,001. You can't vote, 
right? And so we're still in the living legacy of, of these things. And in one lifetime, my parents have seen many different Americas. <laughs> and so this position at the Getty uh, was presented to me. And I figured this is a way to sort of be a sort of protagonist in the history of, of art, uh, meaning that uh, this curatorial position meant that I would be doing things like acquiring archives. I would be uh, just in the field negotiating to actually protect the legacy of, of African-American artists who I studied as, as a child. And so it kind of came around 360 for me. That's legacy and insight in action right there. Laurent's story, growing up in New York and learning about the history of African-American people, has allowed him to take that information and layer human expertise, experience and knowledge on top. It's something that organizations are piling millions of dollars and huge amounts of R&D resource into, but it's something that we humans, and in particular historians, have been doing for decades or even centuries. And like a bad data set, we are still feeling the effects of poor past decisions today. But with insight, we can understand what went wrong and how to fix it. I'm minded of the behavior of the uh, city planner, Robert Moses, who helped shape New York as it's known today throughout a 40-year career in the early mid-20th century. There's a great book by Robert Caro uh, called The Power Broker on this subject. Moses did many great things for New York. At the same time, he's considered by some to have institutionally segregated the city. And for example, under his tenure, bridges and crossings were built between poor and wealthy neighborhoods, but they had low clearances. And you, you will recognize this with the metal struts that you see on the bridges uh, off from Manhattan. They were accessible by a private car, but not public bus. And bus stops were moved away from certain cultural venues and popular sites. The result, the poorest New Yorkers, including hundreds of thousands of African-Americans, were effectively excluded from certain parts of the city and Long Island, creating a cultural map of New York, which still influences the city today. Whether it was done by design or omission is a topic of hot debate but it just shows that data can be read in many, many different ways. I'm loving the way you're taking, and I'm going to call them all these historic data points, but they're basically, they're all these audio records, visual records, written records. You're bringing them together, you're curating them into collections to enable us to inform where we've come from and to. And I'm really interested in how we use it going forward, not just with, say, Black America, but also more broadly into global politics now. So we've got histories coming out of all sorts of places, places of conflict, historically and current, and places of segregation, historic and current. And I'm interested how, and as you say, you use the word trauma, which I find really interesting. So I suppose this is the question, really, how do we take these art forms from trauma and tell new stories? Well, you know, persistence also necessitates joy. Persistence is understanding trauma, but also centering joy at the same time. You know, someone like Cornel West would call it not the tragic comic, but there's a, or maybe, you know, Langston Hughes, right? The bittersweetness of life. And, and so there's a way in which to educate one, one properly about the ways in which people have been oppressed or subjugated, is telling a human story. It is telling, to tell the African-American story is, 
in this country, it's just telling the, the balance between trauma and then persistence against that trauma. You have to include joy there. You have to include the ways in which African-Americans, despite the circumstances, had to utilize joy as a weapon, right? As a sort of boat over the river, you know, through the river, you know, to get to the other side. And so coming from this experience, understanding my own familial history, I have to, I have to find a balance in which to, to say that we resisted by persisting. We resisted, and the archive is a record of persistence. And so if a person has a 60-year career, the fact that he, she, or they has, has maintained this physical legacy is a mighty form of resistance. And so the fact that, you know, I acquire these or, or I'm working with artists to acquire their archives means that those archives, the, the fact that they still persist or ex- exist is a coup against history. Yeah, so you're, you're allowing these archives to bring them to life in order to create history. So I've got to ask you then, 2022, you're at Getty. What next for you? What is the thing that you want to be saying, okay, 10 years time, this is where I've got to with what I'm trying to do with the archive. I don't know, really paint a vision for where you want to go to. I'm going to come back to this, your dream. There's something out there that I think you're, you're seeking. I'm sensing you're seeking a dream. Where's your ultimate connection? You know, if I was to wave a magic wand, what would you could be like if I could make these four connections? This would be the dream ticket. Well, then, you know, speaking in, in Jedi, I think, you know, I'm a Padawan learner for life, you know. You know, Dan, I, I can't really say, but what I do know is that I do want to spend my life protecting and educating people on the value of African-American history. Through the lens of African-American history, we can understand who we are as a democracy, who we are as a people, and we can understand how to move forward and not repeat the mistakes of the past, because my parents are an archive. I'm an archive of New York, you know, uh, influenced by Alabama culture, but growing up in New York, you're an archive of experience because you bring many things, things together. And so for me, I, you know, I, what I will say is that just from here into the future, I want to spend my, my, my life. I, I feel it's purposeful. You know, I, I feel that living a purposeful life is to sort of think about legacy with empathy. Right. To think about how I'm doing what I'm doing today, how it leaves a track record for at least a a morality, a a moral cardinal direction of how to move forward with empathy and think about legacy. Wonderful. Wonderful. Laurent, thank you very much for today. Oh, it's been an honor. Thank you. What Laurent and the Getty Research Institute are doing is not being driven by commercial need or even time pressure. After all, The hard copy images, they're not going anywhere for potentially a century or more if properly stored and preserved. Instead, they're being driven by the need to tell a story. It's being driven by the need to piece together the information of the past to create lessons and insights for future generations in a way that will last forever and open them up to as many people as possible to generate their own insights from. It's important that we're able to take these four million hidden cultural gems so that we can compare and contrast them to the popular narratives of their day and of today and shine a greater light on them. Yes, it's an amazing collection of art and images, but they tell a story. And more importantly, by collating and distributing them, they can inform, influence and inspire more stories in the future. It's not just about learning from the mistakes of the past, it's about driving positive change. 
And that's the essence of good data management with a very human face. Business ecosystems are not new. What is new is that they are becoming increasingly data empowered. To realize complex opportunities, we need innovation beyond boundaries, democratized information, and close collaboration between diverse players. Collaborative, data-empowered, borderless innovation is how we embrace a world of exponential change. And that's what this podcast is about. Thanks for listening to Data Today, brought to you by Zorka. I've been your host, Dan Klein. For more information on Zorka's work, please visit our website. Thank you.